People are desperate for good news, especially amongst the bad news. So you can think about um, the NFL rising star charged with murder just recently. And alongside that, he's being investigated for an additional two murders that happened a year ago. You can think of the, the society having the audacity to redefine God's definition of marriage, which he has already laid out for us in Scripture. And they're basically determining what is good and bad for themselves. Other bad news, if you consider it bad news, the NSA's alleged spying capabilities. People want good news. So no wonder, uh, if you look on the internet, there is there are good news agencies and websites popping up. So you have the Good News Network offers good news to enthuse. The Huffington Post offers a, uh, they got a, a good news section. Inspiring stories, positive news, and then you can even go to happy news. Real news, compelling stories, always positive. Amidst the bad news, we await the announcement of something good. It's revealing, isn't it, about the human condition? Always longing for something better than what we see around us? Enter in Christianity. Christianity is all about good news. That is, after all, what the word gospel means. Uh, it is the evangel in evangelicalism. So we are an evangelical church. The evangel is the gospel, which means good news. And that is what this morning's sermon is all about. This is our second sermon in our series entitled First Baptist Foundations or the Distinguishing Marks of the Church. Last week, Pastor Rick preached on the Word of God, which is our foundation. That's God's revelation to man, where he reveals himself to us by his grace and by his mercy and his kindness. And that's our starting point, the Word of God. And then normally when it comes to sermons, we do something different. We take a passage and then we walk right through it, sometimes verse by verse. Today, not so much, we're not really going to do that. We're going to be addressing a topical, uh, this is a topical sermon that addresses the gospel. So we're going to be flipping around from here to there, looking at various passages. As we look at what this great news of Christianity is all about. There is great need for clarification today because of all the confusion about what the gospel actually is. So various groups of people have sought to redefine the gospel according to their own prerogatives. So you may have the feel-good gospel. You may have the gospel of acceptance. You may have the friendship gospel. You may have a gospel of good works, etc., etc. And because of all the confusion out there, we address what the gospel is today by addressing also what the gospel is not so number one the gospel is not that we are okay i've been reading a book uh, recently called soul searching the religious spiritual lives of american teenagers and the book tracks the spirituality of young people many of whom would claim to be christian christian and the reports reveal that these young people they have faith so we think, okay, well, we should be encouraged there. They believe in a God, but then get this. One who exists, who created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in one's affairs, especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved. Most of the time, the God of this faith keeps a safe distance. 
That's the spirituality of the young people. The book interviewed uh, teenagers at that point in time. This spirituality is really determined and defined by the individual. It doesn't even matter what kind of God you believe in. So in chapter 1 of the book, the author, he goes around and interviews, uh, in particular, he, he highlights this interview with two particular girls. He calls them Baptist girls, so I guess they identify themselves with Christianity. And he asks them, so why choose to believe one thing versus another? And she basically says, and her answer is telling, if people believe certain things and get stuff from it, then great. Whatever works for them. And if it doesn't work out for them, then, you know, no problem. You've got to find whatever is you. Interesting how she assumes, she, she not only assumes, number one, every belief is equally okay and true. But that number two, people are okay enough to determine for themselves what is good. That's the gospel that we are okay. God, you know, he accepts you for who you are, regardless of what you believe and what you do. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's really about you and you are okay. It's up to you anyway. But this thinking doesn't get us very far, does it? I mean, if you don't know someone who believes these things, I'd be really surprised. This thinking really just doesn't get us very far. So are the beliefs that fueled Hitler... And his third Reich to murder six million Jews. Right? Is, is that okay? Equally good? Equally true? Or the belief that drove Pol Pot, the Cambodian communist revolutionary responsible for one to three million deaths? Cambodians? Are those really okay? And then how about on a more domestic level, right? You and me. What about the beliefs that lead you to lie? To shade the truth when you want to protect yourself. Cheat others when you want to gain at the expense of another's loss. You know, even if it's like, you know, the cashier gave you an extra quarter or something like that. What about when you want to put down others when maybe you're just simply grumpy? Or in my case, if I just don't have enough food to eat. Are people really okay enough to determine what is good for them? I think based on those, those few examples, the answer is clearly no. We are okay is so far from the Christian gospel. In reality, our moral compass, you know, compass that you would use to find direction. In reality, our moral internal compass, at the end of the day, no matter how accurate you may think it is, never finds true north. Though the religious youth of today may assume that we are okay, the Bible presents a very different story. The Bible says that all people are sinful. So you can take the book of Romans, for example. The letter to the Roman church was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. He hadn't been there, so he set out to write in, in his letter uh, his ministry. But then especially he wanted to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what he preaches, what he lives for. And he lays out the good news of Jesus. But first he lays out the bad news. This is the bad news that is explained basically for the first three chapters of the book. He says, God had created you and me and everything else in the world, and we were designed to be in a loving relationship, a relationship with God. But we didn't care. God's special chosen people of Israel, they didn't care. The rest of the world, they didn't care. And this is what he says about the rest of the world, Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
And then in verse 22, chapter 1, it says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man, birds, animals, reptiles. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's verse 25. And then he moves to the Jewish people. God's special chosen people. He says, you have no excuse for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Well, why is that? It says, because you, the judge, practice the very same things of idolatry, of sinfulness. He's saying it doesn't matter whether you are a Jewish person or whether you're a Chinese American, uh, Hispanic folk. He says, we are all under the power of sin. That's what it says, under the power of sin there. Go ahead and turn to your, turn to your Bibles to Romans 3. This is Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 16. This is what he says. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. <coughs> Together... They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Did you catch what they were indicted for? Why they are guilty? Guilty primarily of what? Of screwing up a relationship. Did you get that? A relationship. They did not honor him or thank him, the creator. Fundamentally, sin is not ultimately about breaking the law, but going against the God behind the law. Sin is ultimately not about breaking a law, but going against the God who gave the law. You get that? That's relationship stuff. They fail to worship this God. Our sinfulness that leads us to rebel against our very own creator is what is known as depravity. So ever since Adam and Eve, people are born with sinful natures. And not only that, we actually do wrong, so we actually sin. And this sin affects every layer of our being. It's known as total depravity it affects our desires our emotions our wills and our wants and our minds even it's like our internal gps map the internal gps map is at the end of the day flawed and granted some are more flawed than others so hitler's would be more flawed than others pol pot's more flawed than others but nevertheless we are all at the end of the day flawed because of sin and though the world would try and convince ourselves that we are okay, nothing is further from the truth according to God's word. The gospel is not that we are okay. Number two, the gospel is not simply that God is love. And uh, I have this fantastic example here um, written by a brother named Greg Gilbert. We served as pastors together in Louisville. And, you know, just bear with me here. This introduction to, to, to his chapter on God is a bit long, but bear with me. You'll get the point. I'll just go ahead and read it. Let me introduce you to God. Note the lowercase g. 
You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days are ones, uh, the ones he talks about when you really get him going were a, a long time ago, before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared what he thought about things and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, though, and God, poor fellow, just never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now he spends most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask him for things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness all the crankiness you read about sometimes in his old books, you know, having the earth swallow up people, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. All that seems to have faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do, regardless, is all right by him. That's really the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me, ever, for anything. Oh, sure, I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better, more loving, less selfish, and all that. But he's realistic, he knows that I'm human, and nobody's perfect. And I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know. And I wouldn't have him any other way. That's from What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Excellent book, only about 100 pages. But is that the God you know? That introduction, of course, is tongue-in-cheek, but it does reflect the way many people understand God today. Never judging, always forgiving. He is love. But really, to boil down God... To God is love is so simplistic, even in the parenting realm, right? Even in the parenting realm. Okay, if you are a parent, you understand. And if you are a child of anyone, you understand this. Um, we know that love can't be reduced to such sappy, sentimental love. A love that never says no. Never draws boundaries. A love that never judges or even punishes. I mean, can you just imagine, just stop for a second, just imagine what a world like that would be. Where love never included a good use of authority. A parent always yielding to the child's will. Every request, every desire, every whim. A teacher never drawing boundaries with his or her students, even the disruptive ones. Cops giving out teddy bears instead of tickets. Hugs instead of arrests. A king who out of love never had consequences for rebellion or treason. But whose law was only called forgiveness. The world would be a terrible place. I mean, if you're like me and are just a little bit sinful, you might think, oh, look at all the possibilities that we could do if love never involved a good use of authority. Think about how many things we could get away with. But you just multiply that a million and you'll recognize really fast that that is not a world you want to live in.
especially when the crimes are then committed against you, and then you are given every wish you desire. You would be a wreck. So if we stop to think about it, as one pastor has said, true love does not always let. True love doesn't always let. Biblically speaking, so now we're going to shift. Biblically speaking, God is love just doesn't cut it either. God is so much more than love. And he's complicated. So it is true. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. Okay? Without doubt, God is love. But this is not the whole story. So what about all the other things the Bible says God is? And have you ever stopped to think about those things? What about God is holy? So then you've got to ask the question, was how does a holy God love? Mark Dever asks these same questions, and he, he combines these attributes together to help us thinking about our God, who is in fact love, but is so many other things. How does a holy God love? How about this one? God is a consuming fire. So in other words, God is judge. How does a judging God love people? God is jealous. How does a jealous God love just as much as God is love, he is all those other things and more. And then this love informs all of his other attributes. And then all of his other attributes informs his love. God is holy. He is righteous. He is judging. And he is, in fact, loving. And this is what he tells himself, tells us. So Moses, at one point in time, asked God to reveal to him his character. And this is what God says. He passes before him, that is Moses, and proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So we love all that, right? Everybody loves a God like that. But then he goes on, but who will by no means clear the guilty? You see how according to the Bible, love and judgment actually go together? And we know this, right? Out of love for human beings, we want to see, for example, the Nazi war criminal indicted. We actually want to see him judged because we love people. We want to see them brought to justice. So a good judge ought not let the guilty go unpunished. And we might praise that judge. We might love that judge. We might vote for that judge. Maintaining a God who is never judging, always forgiving, God is only love. At the end of the day, just doesn't work and is not biblical. Greg Gilbert comments, It's always interesting to watch what happens when people who insist that God would never judge them come face to face with undeniable evil. Then they want a God of justice and they want him now. They want God to overlook their own sin but not the terrorists. Forgive me, they say, but don't you dare forgive him. He concludes this way. You see, nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. In love, there is always a place for judgment. For us, the Bible says that we are accountable to this God, the judge. And this is everywhere in Romans. As, as uh, mentioned earlier, we are all sinful and God's law shows us this. Why? Romans 3, 9, 19 answers. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. So we should be asking, in light of our own circumstances, in light of who we are, as we already covered in our first point, 
we should be asking, how does an unrighteous people like us get back into fellowship with a righteous God, a holy God who never sins, whose eyes are too pure to look on evil? How do we do that since we ourselves are unrighteous people? So are you grasping how important it is to understand God according to how he's revealed himself in the Bible? If we think our fundamental need in life is a hug and a teddy bear, rather than to be granted pardon for sin, forgiven, reconciled, declared right in God's sight, we are in big trouble. The good news, God judges in his holiness and his righteousness, but it is always followed always informed by his love. He is a God who is merciful, a God of grace, as we see in our next point. The gospel is not simply that God is love. Number three, the gospel is not the news that Jesus wants to be our friend. Sometimes the gospel is presented simply as Jesus wants to be our friend, our older brother who sets us a great example so that we might follow in his footsteps. He blazed the trail of love, after all, and self-sacrifice and morality, and we then ought to do the same. But this also doesn't work. If we, as we have already seen, are not okay but sinful, and if God turns out to be very different than never judging, always loving, and instead will judge in righteousness and holiness, then what good does Jesus is my homeboy do for me, personally? What good does that gospel do? How exactly does being bros with Jesus make us right before a holy God to get us back into a relationship with one who is so holy? I mean, don't get me wrong. Jesus is a friend. He is our friend. He has befriended us. But he's a friend in a much different way than many people assume. So when you ask the question, who is Jesus a friend of? The nature of his friendship with us takes on an astounding depth. He is friend of sinners. So the gospel is not that Jesus walks a moral life with sinners, but that he came on earth to die for sinners. The gospel is not that Jesus walks a moral life with sinners, but that he came to die for sinners. And here is his mission, according to his own words. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, God has sent his eternal Son to accept the judgment that we deserved. So that we might be in fellowship with him. An unrighteous people cannot stand before a righteous God. And so in order that we might, God being gracious and merciful and loving, a God of steadfast love sent his son to die in our stead. So this is where we see God's steadfast love sort of reach its pinnacle, at least in our own eyes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So the cross is his mission. Which is why he wouldn't let anything stop him from going to the cross. So at one point in time he announces that he has to die and then rise again. And Peter, what is his response? Peter being so bold and often gets his foot in his mouth and uh, acts ahead of knowledge. He says, get behind, or he says, um, never, this thing will never happen. You will not die. And Jesus' response is get behind me, Satan. It is Satan's mission to derail Christ from his cross. But according to Jesus, nothing will stop him from going to the cross to die as a sacrifice. This is the crux, the cross of his mission. 
You know, if you read through the Bible, you see how important the sacrifices are. And some of us might be wondering, okay, what in the world are all these Old Testament sacrifices? Those are there so that God would provide foreshadows, pointers, foreshadowing pointers that would lead us to the greatest sacrifice that is Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why he gave uh, Israel the instruction to sacrifice a lamb, a perfect lamb, without spot on the day of the atonement. It foreshadowed what was to come. So in the New Testament, sacrifice is everywhere. So in John 1.29, it says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9 says, Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the great and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9 also says, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then you can look through all of Paul's letters, right? He's talking about the blood, the blood. Why? Because in Jesus, you who who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Blood here is so important because he dies... Where we should have. Because he bears our sin, the wrath that we deserve. And therefore, he assuages God's wrath. Because God's wrath is satisfied. And then now we can be brought back into relationship. Into fellowship with this righteous and loving God. So you see how at the cross, it's there that God's wrath and his mercy meet. Jesus bears God's wrath. Bears God's wrath that we deserve. And in mercy, God pardons the guilty who turn and believe in him. That is the gospel. The gospel is what God has done. And the gospel answers our greatest needs. Though we were enslaved to sin, we have, as Ephesians 1, 7 says, redemption through his blood. Though we were held hostage to sin, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, as Mark 10, 45 says. Though we were guilty in Christ, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, as Ephesians says. Though we were alienated from God, there's relationship language again. Though we were alienated from God, through Christ God reconciled us to himself, as 2 Corinthians 5.18 says. In our sin we were children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 says. But thank God for Christ who is the propitiation for our sins, that is, he satisfies God's wrath. Though we were unrighteous before a holy God, through faith in Christ we are justified in God's sight, or declared righteous. In God's sight. That's in Romans 3. Where we are weak and unable to defeat the devil, God disarmed the powers and authorities. That's in Colossians. So it's amazing how much clarity we gain about what the gospel is when we examine what the gospel fixes. It's amazing how much clarity we gain about what the gospel is when we see what the death of Jesus fixes. This is what D.A. Carson says. If God had perceived our greatest need was economic, alleviate, let's say, poverty, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But... God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. 
And he sent us a savior. He is just not our brother, not just an example, but he is Lord and Savior. And his cross is so crucial to his mission. If you read through the Bible, you see this from the start to the finish. The finish, it says, you know, we ask the question, well, who exactly is sharing the divine throne? At the end of God's story of redemption, when everything is brought to its fulfillment, who shares the divine throne? Who is worthy to receive honor and praise and glory? It is, as Revelation 5 says, the slain lamb by whose blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is not simply our brother. Lastly, point number four, the gospel is not the news that we should live right. The gospel is not the news that we should live right. You know, sometimes the gospel is presented as if the greatest and most important thing in life is that we ought to live right. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Be an upstanding moral citizen and vote. Christianity then becomes about stuff to do. It's actually the very antithesis of the gospel. If the gospel is an announcement about what God has done, then the antithesis uh, antithesis of the gospel is what you have done, or what you ought to do, or what you now need to do. Attend church. Spend time with very moral people. Do good to your neighbors. Read your Bible every day. Talk to God through prayer. Volunteer at homeless shelter. Eradicate sex trafficking. All of those things, by the way, are very good things. But that is not the gospel. In reality, given everything we've seen, our sinfulness, that God is loving but holy and righteous, the biblical response when you are confronted with this reality is not, hey, let's go out and do things, right? So if you can imagine this, if we genuinely, if God is God and we are who we are in that we're sinful, And then we actually begin to realize, oh my goodness, things aren't equal as they seem to be. I am actually not good, and I cannot earn my salvation, which then, if you believe that, sort of lowers the importance of Jesus Christ's great work. And if you aren't so bad, that might lower the the perfections of God. Um, So when we are confronted with who Jesus is and all those biblical truths... The natural gut instinct is not, hey, great, let's go out and do things. Let's attend church because I'm so sinful. Let's read our Bibles because I'm sinful. Really, the appropriate response according to the Bible is worship. Remember, this is relational. It is worship. Wholehearted, repentant, joyful, sorrowful, exuberant. Worship. So there's a story in the Bible where Jesus is coming along and uh, he's calling his first disciples. And they have just come back come back from a long night, an unfruitful night of fishing. Right? They haven't caught anything. And Jesus comes along and he has the gall to say to these fishermen, cast your net out again. Go ahead and do it. Right? This guy, is he's not a fisherman. He's a son of a carpenter. So he probably knows carpentry more than fishing. And Peter says, okay, we did this all night, but you are the teacher. That's the word he uses, the teacher. And this is what happens. The Bible says when they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets began to break. And you know how Peter responded when he realized who this person was that stood before him? That just had command 
over the, the elements of the world, the physical realm. He comes face to face with the Lord. And he fell down on, at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's not teacher. It's O Lord. This is very much what... what uh, or. Uh, this very much captures the response the gospel calls us to. In a couple words, it is repent and believe. Repent and believe. So repent means literally just turn around. So you're turning around from sin. You're turning around from your evil ways. And then it's an acknowledgement and a deep conviction that God is God and you are his. This is exactly what the early church preached. Acts 2, repent and be baptized every one of you. Baptism would symbolize the inner work of the Spirit, or them being united to Christ, dying with Christ in His death, and then being raised with Christ in His resurrection. Acts 3, Repent therefore and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that your times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then you have believe. So you got repent and then you got believe. God calls us to respond not only by turning away from sin, but also to Him. So you don't only turn away from sin and live a moral life, but you turn away from sin and towards God. This is a summary. Paul summarized the message of the gospel he preached in Acts 20. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and in faith and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So one is not saved. One does not get grace. One does not get forgiveness through baptism or taking the Lord's Supper or in joining a church. Though all those things are very good. One does not get saving grace through those things. Um, forgiveness, right standing with God or reconciliation comes through repenting of sin and turning to Christ in acknowledgement of who he is we certainly are not saved by works and works no, in no way adds to your salvation they are as God calls them if you rely on them, bring them before God absent of a heart that wants to worship him they are dirty, filthy rags before a holy God I mean, just read the book of Galatians so if you're tempted, if you struggle to think, you know, naturally you come in contact with God and the first thing you say is, let's go and do things. You know, go ahead and read, the, read Galatians. You, we are not saved by our works. The gospel of God is the good news about what God has done. And so we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this type of belief, which isn't mental assent, results in worship of Him. Remember, this is personal. And then we begin to love him. So, so his purposes begin to be, become our purposes. His passions become our passions. His truth we begin to live for and then defend. And this salvation by grace doesn't mean that we neglect good works. Absolutely not. So God says, be holy for I am holy. And then the person who claims to be a Christian but chooses a life of immorality and chooses not to repent of sin, he tells them, they don't even know fellowship with him. So there's a category. Someone who claims to be a Christian, but in reality does not know God. So genuine believers care about holiness and works, even though they do not save us. And we care more for the God himself. The question is, what do you care more about? Who, whose will do you live for? Whose purposes Whose passions, whose truth do you hold forth and defend? If you know yourself not to be a Christian, you might be visiting with us today. 
This command here, what the gospel calls of us, demands of us, is that we repent of our sins and believe on Him. So you remember the call to worship? The holiness of God, His character, His steadfast love, His grace, as well as His judgment as a judge and His holiness, invites people to say before God, I am a sinner, have mercy on me, as opposed to run away from Him in shame, thinking like, no one's going to forgive me. But yet God is a forgiving God, and He calls us all to find rest in Him. Repent and believe. To conclude, the good, the good news is, is, is the announcement about what God has done. It is not that we are okay, okay. Rather, before our Maker and Creator, we are sinners in desperate need of salvation. It is not simply that God is love. Rather, a holy God in His mercy and grace saves sinners through judging sin. It is not that Jesus wants to be our homeboy. Rather, it is that God saves sinners through judging sin by sending His eternal Son, Jesus, to die and be raised as Lord and Savior. And on that cross, He bears the sin and wrath that we deserve. It is not that we ought to live right alongside our brother Jesus, but that we ought to repent and believe in Christ for the salvation of our sins, for forgiveness and reconciliation and right standing with God. Remember, this is relationship here. And the gospel is the announcement about what God has done for us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you as being a gracious and loving God. We know that is the case, that you are who you say you are. As your word says, that you lavish your love upon us by calling us to be your children. So Lord, we pray that in light of gospel confusion, we pray Lord that we would go to the source that is your word. So that we might understand what you desire of us. So that we might know and embrace and love the way of salvation that you have laid out for us in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sins. Lord, we pray that we would always keep this gospel at the forefront of our minds and on the tip of our tongues. We pray, Lord, that by the Spirit's power you would impress upon us new convictions and new insight into this gospel. Knowing that you, our Father, have saved us and you have given us your mercy and we now have access to you, directly to you, because of Jesus Christ. We pray these things for your name and for your glory. Amen.